An Air Force colonel once told me, kill the snake that's closest to you. She was the commanding officer of the medical group in Tucson, and she said this during a stress management seminar. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, when you've got deadlines approaching in your job, or, or I mean, I know I realize many of you are, are retired now, but you know, you remember what it was like. Or maybe you have still thing, st things still that are due on certain dates, you know. Uh, when you're overloaded with tasks that need to be done and you can't figure out how to prioritize them, you finish the ones that you can complete the soonest and then you know, get those out of the way first, then work on the ones that are further out in the distance. You kill the snake that's closest to you. It's a great illustration because if you picture it literally, you know, if you're standing in a snake pit, and you don't want to get bit, you kill the snake that's closest to you. Doesn't sound like that worked too well for the Israelites though, does it? I mean, uh, what is the deal here? God sends fiery serpents to bite and kill his chosen people who he just brought out of Egypt? He went through all that trouble with Pharaoh and Moses and all those signs and wonders just to punish them in this weird way for whining about rotten food? I don't know about you, but being a Christian today compared to being an Israelite back then seems we have, seems we have it pretty easy, doesn't it? We have the Messiah now who intercedes for us and causes God the Father to hold back His anger and relent from these bizarre types of punishment. Thank you, Jesus, right? <laughs> Can you imagine living under God's wrath as well as His love in the Old Testament? He could change His mood at any time and destroy you in an instant. This was the God Martin Luther believed he was living under even though Luther had Jesus, even though he knew Jesus. But it was the Holy Spirit who later convinced Luther in Scripture that Jesus imparts His righteousness to us baptized believers so we don't live in fear anymore of God sending fiery serpents to bite and kill us to punish us for our whining. But since we know God is unchanging, He's still the same God today as He was back in the day of Moses, then we have to deal with this and we have to come to terms with this strange behavior He demonstrates in the Bible. I had to look up fiery serpents in the Hebrew to try and find out just what these things were. What do you think? What do you think they were? Snakes? Just your regular old garden variety of snake? What kind maybe? Cobra? Uh, deadly, yeah. Viper maybe or an asp or something? Well, a Hebrew dictionary doesn't give you anything more about it. I think the English translators did a pretty good job. They just did their best. They just stuck with what it says. Fiery serpents. Fiery. Now what could that mean? Well, yeah. These things, were these things on fire? Was it the color of their skin? Or did their bite feel fiery with its toxic venom? We don't really know. 
It wouldn't be ironic, though, if the serpents were cobras because the cobra was the prime snake of Egypt. You know, it was its uh, sort of a signature snake. So it's as if God could be saying, oh, you don't like my way of bringing you out of slavery? You want to go back? Well, then have a little taste of Egypt again. We already know God's relationship with Israel was stormy at times, to say the least. But man, there's something about God and Egypt too. He really, really doesn't like the Egyptians. He doesn't like their gods. He didn't like their kings. And he didn't like their army. If you were here last Wednesday for the midweek Lenten service, we heard Brenna read the whole account from Exodus of Israel fleeing Egypt through the Red Sea. And as many times as I've read that myself, I hadn't noticed before Wednesday that God says repeatedly that he'll get glory over Pharaoh. And he mentions the chariots and the horses at least three times. I've studied Hebrew and and that kind of repetition is common in the language, but it's also what God actually said. I'll get glory over Pharaoh, he says. What does that sound like? I believe that that whole deal with Israel and Egypt was not only to save his people, but also to one-up the competition. That being Pharaoh and all his grand decked-out chariots and his splendid horses. It really was a showdown. And it, it must have been something to, uh, it, it must have been an awesome spectacle to behold, huh? don't you think? And you've got to wonder why God did all that when he could have just made Pharaoh and Egypt vanish with just a word. Instead, he orchestrates this elaborate face-off for the entire world to see and hear about. He really is a jealous God. And it's okay for us to say that because he tells us he is. He's honest about himself to us. Some things about himself he does choose to hide from us, but other things he tells us of his own will so that we would know him and be able to appropriately respond when he speaks. Now notice when Israel, notice what Israel does while they're being bitten by these snakes. Do they get worse? Do they whine even more against God? Do they stop believing in him altogether because a loving God certainly wouldn't do this kind of thing? Or if there was a God at all, he wouldn't even allow one snake to bite anyone, let alone kill. No, they repent. They turn back to him. They're sorry for complaining and plead for mercy. What does God do? He gives them a remedy and saves the rest of them. Notice any similarity between the staff, the pole that, uh, that Moses is is standing there with with the serpent hanging on it and the cross. You notice the similarity? That's typology, my friend. That's an that's a, 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 a academic word or biblical word, but it's typology in the nth degree. Moses is a kind of Jesus. He's a type of Jesus. He saves the people. The staff is a type of Jesus. It saves when one looks at it. 
This was Israel's faith and life at the time, and it was the Christian faith and life foreshadowed, told ahead of time. It's amazing. We come to God's house where He promises to be for you and me, and we plead Him to forgive our whining and complaining and many other faults too numerous to, to mention. You can, you can gaze on the cross. There, the one hanging on the wall there. You can gaze at that. You can gaze at the statue of Jesus. That's not going to save you now. But the target of the objects save you, right? Jesus saves you on the cross. The three fiery serpents that were closest to us, closing in and ready to strike, you know, sin, death, and the devil, killed. Jesus took care of that for us when he was lifted up on the cross and died. Our sin, the old Adam in us, killed with him, drowned in baptism, and a new person has been raised up with him out of the water, you and me, raised up with Jesus. Our death has been defeated forever. We still experience it, but it's not the end. And the devil, well, he's no longer a serpent. He's more like a a scorpion now, according to Paul, able to sting and injure, but not kill completely. He's also still a beast of some kind, and God has promised to throw him into the fire forever. So, bottom line, He's been taken care of too. My colleague and friend who uh, teaches theology up at Concordia Portland says, the preacher who can't come up with a sermon on these readings today needs to hang up his stole and turn in his keys to the church building. These are the three most compelling texts in all of Scripture. God saves His people despite their sin from the venomous snakes in the wilderness. Paul preaches that we are saved by grace through faith, a gift not of works. And John tells us that God loved the world so much that he sent his only son so that the one who believes in him has eternal life. It almost preaches itself. These readings almost preach themselves. In fact, the danger often is that these texts are so familiar to us today, they're like well-worn stones as if there's no longer something to grab hold or get any traction on anymore. Well, that might be all well, but I hope you see the Old Testament reading today in a way that perhaps you didn't before and gain a little more traction and at least knowing Jesus more. Is knowing this typology of Moses and the serpents necessary for salvation? Well, this reading today from the Old Testament may may not be the one that you approach with somebody with to evangelize to them. This is something one learns later. You know, this isn't necessarily the spiritual milk one needs in the infancy of their faith. It's the spiritual meat you chew on later. Nevertheless, you want to know Jesus more, don't you? Well, He's more than a meek, sandal-wearing Savior. He's got a history and a personality that'll blow your mind. He's in the Bible even before he was born on Christmas. He's all over it. He's in it. He's in the words, giving life to you and me and promise and hope 
of the resurrection, even in the early days of Moses and Abraham and Noah and in the garden as we've been hearing this Lenten season. So even though we don't fear fiery serpents coming down from God to punish us, let's stop our whining and complaining against Him for our troubles. He sent us a lamb who doesn't bite but willingly is sacrificed on your behalf, on my behalf. Jesus is the scapegoat, the scape lamb, if you want to call it. He takes our sin from us and takes it away. He's already killed the three most important snakes that threaten to take, a, to take our lives forever. He is lifted up forever and sits at the right hand of God and He will return to take us where He is. Amen. And may the peace of God which surpasses all human understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.